my wife and I recently um, had the awesome, exciting time of going on our cruise. It was our first cruise ever, and it was to celebrate our 10th wedding anniversary. So give it up for Amy. She stuck with me for 10 years at least. Come on, that's good. Um, while we were on the boat, though, there's a lot of activity. You know, there's places to take pictures. There's different restaurants to go to. There's entertainment. There's all kinds of stuff like that. And we got to go to this one entertaining show called Love and Marriage. So you might be familiar with the concept, but essentially what they do is they bring three couples out of the audience. They bring newlyweds, okay, they bring oldest weds, if you could say that, okay? The ones who are married the longest on the boat. On our boat, they were, I think, married 65 years. And then they bring a couple that's in the middle of that at somewhere around the 20, 25 mark, whatever, to, somewhere in the middle of their marriage. And so they bring them up, they sit them back to back, okay? And then they ask them questions. So they'll ask a question like, you know, what was the name of his last girlfriend? And the girl has to write it down on a board and the guy has to write it down on a board. And then they come back to them and they reveal the answers and they go through. And I began thinking because some of it was really comical. It was hilarious, especially with the older couple. It was hilarious um, because you'd think, you know, they'd been married 65 years. They would know every detail and everything about each other, but they still got some of the questions wrong. And it wasn't like a question about his last girlfriend, you know, 60 years ago. It was some relevant stuff that they were just not kind of in sync on. So I started to think it would be really awesome if they could just read each other's minds, right? It'd be cool because then you'd win the prize. They got a free spa day or a free dinner at the steakhouse or whatever. I thought, man, that'd be really cool. And then I started to think, you know what? I'm glad that sometimes people can't read my mind, right? If we could only read each other's minds, I'm sure some of you are thankful, most if not all of us are thankful that we can't read other people's thoughts. It'd be nice to get on the same page for a game show, but for the rest of life, it's not. And so I'm thinking through that thought and I start to say, how can we have some telepathy? How could we get into the mind and kind of read the mind of an ancient Israelite? How could we get into their headspace and think like they thought about certain things? I'm gonna prepare you by telling you this probably will be the weirdest message you've ever heard preached in a church. And I know some of y'all been in some weird places, all right? No, so when we connect the dots though, we wanna think well, we wanna read well, and we want to study the word of God well. Three things that you always need to remember, and they're on your screen. Three things are, one, don't be scared. There are places in the Bible where things get weird, and that's okay. Don't be scared, and don't skip over it. The next is, allow the text to speak for itself. Um, in preparation to this message, I texted a handful of friends, some in ministry, some believers who are not in ministry. And I said, hey, check out this passage of scripture and give me your thoughts back. As many people as I texted, I got that amount of results back and they were all different. Every person was different. Allow the text to truly speak for itself. And if it gets weird, dive deep, okay? When it gets weird, don't balk. It deserves a thorough ins inspection. So don't just scratch the surface, like imagine the person with snorkel 
equipment that's just kind of on the surface and goes maybe 10 foot deep. But think about it in the realm of scuba gear. Think about it in the realm of needing that equipment to go deep into the word of God to find out what it's all about. So the message title today is Scuba Divers Wanted. So listen to what Genesis chapter six says. Verse one of chapter six in Genesis says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Verse three says, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in, or we could say strive with man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Verse four, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into, or we could say procreated with the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. I can almost guarantee that you've never heard a message preached on this, but you've probably come somewhere through this in your Bible reading and thought, wait a second, wait, who was Goliath? Wait, there was a race of giants on the earth. Wait, how did something happen with things called sons of God being like procreating with human beings? Like how did all of that happen? We're gonna dive into that very subject today. The flood is detailed in the next few verses. God pretty much says, I've had it. And Noah is there. He institutes the flood. The flood comes. Now listen to a portion of what's known as the Song of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 32. He's taking care of things in his last acts as the leader for the people, and he's singing a song to them. Listen to what 32 verse 7 and 9 through, through 9, I should say, say. Verse seven says, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will tell you. When the most high gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Verse nine says, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. That's an important phrase for us to understand. God chose to have a portion of people he would call his own. Let me break this down for you in these two or three verses here. It says there, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Seems awfully curious. Why, why are we talking about this? Who are the sons of God? And if so, and he's given inheritance of the nations to these sons of God, the Lord's people is his inheritance or his allotted heritage, the Lord will have a people. The Bible tells us all the way throughout scripture that whenever anything happened, when God was going to judge his own people or the world, there was always something called a remnant. 
We would say today it's leftovers, okay? When you do a work, when you do work on a job site, you've got pieces left over, scrap wood, whatever it is, you use it for the next project. When you have leftover dinner, you put it in the fridge, you eat it the next day. God is saying all throughout his scripture that I, no matter what happens, I will have a people to call my own. The word of the Lord says that in the days of Noah, the earth was wicked. There was wickedness everywhere. And yet there was a remnant, Noah and his family on the ark. God always has a remnant and a people. No matter how dark the days get, he has people he calls his own. Jump down to verse 15 through 18 in this strange passage. It says this in verse 15, but Jeshurun, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Let me help you out, okay? Jeshurun is actually a term of endearment that's mentioned in other places for the man whose name was Israel or Jacob. So he's calling him out and he says, not sleek in, hey, I'm wearing this sleek black dress, but slippery, okay? <laughs> you grew fat and slippery, and he forsook God who made him. He scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Continue reading. It says there in verse 16, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons. Now, let me tell you, I've done a lot of research in this passage of scripture. That phrasing there that says that were no gods truly should say they sacrificed to demons, not God, okay? So they're sacrificing to demons. To gods, the next phrase says, they never knew or had never known. And then to new gods that had come recently, what? <laughs> to new gods that had just arrived or had just become known, whom your fathers had never dreaded. Otherwise, they'd never worshiped or never feared these gods. Are you freaked out yet? It says this in verse 18, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you and you forgot the God who fathered you or gave you birth. So notice there in this passage, the reference to the nation's inheritance earlier that we talked about, the divided nature of mankind and that the borders were set by God according to the number of the sons of God. The Lord also set apart a people. And then it says there that they sacrificed to demons, to gods they had never known, to new gods. They forgot the rock of their salvation, the God that fathered them. So if we're thinking in context of what's happening, I want you to understand that every one of these words that applies when we talk about to gods they never knew or knew gods, each one of those is actually talking about divine beings. It's not talking about someone jumping in a wood shop, carving up a little idol and setting it there and being like, yeah, he's the God of whatever and I'm going to worship him. They're actually mentioned throughout scripture as being divine beings. Go with me to Psalm 82. Psalm 82, verse one, it says this, a Psalm of Asaph. He's a very important guy. You should look up the details of his life. He wrote a few Psalms that we have contributed, but he lived through the life of David and the life of Solomon. Here it says, a Psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place 
in the divine council, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Verse two, he says, God's word says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Salah. Let me explain this word. I can't really explain it fully because scholars are still arguing about that word. But what they understand Salah to mean is that it was a musical interlude, that it was a pause or a break for you to consider the content that came before, for you to change your instrument, for you to think about what was going to come next. So it's a moment for you to pause and think. It says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Let me also explain this to you. Psalms were not only read, they would have also been sung. They would have been translated throughout history, not translated in language, but uh, transferred, I guess I should say, from generation to generation because they would have been sang or talked or shared from time to time all the way throughout each generation. Verse three says this, give justice to the weak and the fatherless maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Another way to say that or to put that would be all the foundations of the earth are being undermined. It says this, I said in verse six, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Strange stuff happens in the Bible. So what are you thinking right now? You're thinking thoughts of, wait a second, there's multiple gods mentioned. Did they serve multiple gods? Is it polytheism, which would be multi-god worship? Is, but I thought we only served one God. Pastor, why are you trying to confuse me? I'm not. I'm trying to dive deep into the word of God to help us see and think and know what the ancient Israelite or Canaanite would have known about what they knew God, who he was. So when Asaph says this, I love that it says at verse one, I'm gonna break this down a little bit. It says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And then at the end, in the last verse, it says, arise, O God, and judge the earth. This is Asaph writing his own words to God, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So it's almost as if Asaph is having a vision and he's gone into that heavenly chamber where God is meeting with a divine council of divine beings who are represented there. He's looking in and he's capturing this conversation and God is proclaiming judgment against those who are in the council who are not judging and ruling like they ought to. I'll eliminate two things for you and you can dive deep into this if you want. They are not human rulers. There's no way that looking at the Hebrew, they can be human rulers. Also, there's no way that it's representative of the Trinity because God has no division within himself. So he can't be telling the son or the spirit, yeah, you guys are bad and I'm gonna send you down to earth and I'm gonna make you experience death. 
No, he's actually talking to these divine beings in a divine council setting. And I want you to just let that sink in for a minute. That he has that vision, that Asaph has that vision and he writes it down and it's in our scripture. God is truly rebuking those who are in that divine council for failing to execute righteous justice. He's judging them and he's sentencing them, sentencing them to death. Divine beings, as we know them, would be what? Immortal, right? Unable to see death. And yet in this moment, he is saying to them, I'm going to let you die like men die I am going to punish you by not allowing you to remain immortal. So he's judging them and they're losing their immortality. Listen to this in the scripture, which is not gonna be on the screen, but it's the complete Jewish Bible. Listen to how they translate the Hebrew. It says, a Psalm of Asaph, Elohim, God, stands in the divine assembly. There with the Elohim, God's small g, plural. He judges. How long will you go on judging unfairly, favoring the wicked? Give justice to the weak and fatherless. Uphold the rights of the wretched and poor. Rescue the destitute and needy. Deliver them from the power of the wicked. Verse five, they don't know. They don't understand. They wander about in darkness. Meanwhile, all the foundations of the earth are being undermined. My decree is you are God's sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, you will die like mere mortals. Like any prince, you will fall. Rise up. Elohim, capital E, so God with the big G, and judge the earth for all the nations are yours. So we see in these pictures that we're getting a heavenly tribunal of sorts. If you are wondering where else this goes, it's in other passages of scripture. Think about Micaiah. You can reference that later or take a note, but think about that. There's a meeting of the divine council and God knowing all things possible says, how are we going to accomplish this goal? And he receives insight from those who are in the council. It's in the scripture, but you've got to dig into it. So it's not the Trinity, that would be heretical. And it's definitely not human rulers because he's saying you are gods and now you're going to remove your immortality and become like a prince or like a man. So the grammar and the syntax are clear. The God of Israel is presiding over a group of divine beings. The plurality is there in verse six and seven when it says they are suffering essentially their loss of immortality. So when you think about the Bible, are you thinking about it in your American mindset? Or are you reading and absorbing it like an ancient Israelite would have read it or understood it and absorbed it? See, we like to think that when we jump into the word of God, God's promised to bless us. He's promised to love us. He's promised to give us grace. He's promised to give us mercy. We think of all those things, yet we don't look at the totality of scripture and say, there's so much more about him and about creation. We're, we are accustomed in our American mindset to define God, G-O-D, as the God of Israel, right? 
and with a specific set of attributes. He's merciful, he's kind, he's good, but the biblical text expresses that other gods exist and indeed are real, but translators, pastors, and believers try to get ourselves through those weird places in scripture because we're like, that, that goes against what I believe and I don't know how to really comprehend that. So we just pass over it and we run through it. So what's the problem if I believe that God, according to Psalm 82, is in a divine council setting and he's allowing those other Elohim, the Bible actually says, to help him and to give insight and input. It's not because he needs them, it's because he wants them or allows them to be there. It's not because he needs you or I. The same principle is there, except that he loves us and chose to create us. He chooses to love us. So we, we try to obscure these thoughts sometimes because we're like, wait, I can't be polytheistic. I don't serve many gods. I heard the whole egg thing with the Trinity, the yoke, the shell, the white. I get it, God three in one. And then this kind of upsets our thinking. And so when people start translating through there, they start to try to weave it around until it's kind of undecipherable. The biblical writers repeatedly reaffirm though that there is no Elohim like our Elohim. The reason that he stands in the midst of them is because he rules them. The reason that we see that he's doing this is he is God Almighty, the most high. There's a Hebrew phrase that's mentioned in here called El Elyon, the most high, or basically you could say in English language, he's the superlative. He is the God above all others. All else will bow to who we serve, amen? So this is what an ancient Israelite believed about Yahweh though. So when we think about monotheism, which is a 17th century term, it doesn't really help us understand this concept. So how many of you would raise your hand and say, pastor, this is new for me today? Go ahead, raise your hand. Yeah, this is, okay. I want you to dig deep. Today is just to whet your appetite to know that there's some places in scripture that deserve deeper thought. Yahweh is utterly and eternally unique even in the midst of other gods, even if the Israelites understood them to be real, even if Asaph says, and it's in the word of God, which we declare is inspired, that he gets a window into heaven to see that God is presiding in a council setting and these things are happening. But God is the one who is exercising judgment upon them because he's saying the foundations of the earth are being undermined. They're being undermined and he wants to set it right. Come on, somebody. God always sets it right. He will set it right. We may not see it set right the way that we wish we could. We may not see it set right in the time that we desire it to be so, but our God is a just and a good God and he is above all others, amen? So we have nothing to fear for letting the text say what it says. Jump to Psalm 89, and I'm gonna click through these pretty quickly. Psalm 89, verse five through eight. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord. Your faithfulness, wait for it, in the assembly of the holy ones. Verse six of chapter 89 in Psalm, it says, for who in the skies, the heavens, 
Who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings? Or the word there in Hebrew would be Elohim. The gods is like the Lord. Verse seven, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. He's high above all the rest of this and awesome above all who are around him. Verse eight, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are? O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. So the point being that this is not a one-time, one-author thing in scripture. I always want you to understand the word of God and I don't want you to peck at one tiny little verse and say, oh, I'm gonna make up a new item of theology here. This is what this verse said about this and I'm not gonna search anywhere else. No, I want you to dig deep and see how we connect the dots all the way through scripture. But wait, there's more. Listen to this familiar passage. Just listen to it. If, you're, if you've been in a church at any point, you've probably heard a message on this scripture that's coming up. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Verse 13, the first part says this, therefore take up the whole armor of God. Otherwise, there are things that are going on in the heavenly realm. There are things that are happening outside of the context of our humanness, and it doesn't deserve us to worship any other God or any other thing or to try to pick up another idol or anything like that, but for us to serve the one true God, the Most High, who is above all principalities, who is above all powers, who's above every ruler, human or divine, and he will have a remnant. Listen to these attributes of God and stand to your feet. I wanna encourage you today. I want you to listen to what the word of God says about the God who is above all other gods. It says that he is above all, that he's holy, that he's unchanging, that he's ever present. He's present when you need him and when you don't think you do. He's still there. He's all wise. The Bible says he's all knowing. He knows every detail. He knows the end from the beginning. This ought to encourage you today. He's self-sufficient. He's never had to be created. He's the only uncreated one. Our God is good. He's full of love. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's just. He's righteous. He's sovereign. Think about what he's done in your life. He's a deliverer. He's a creator. In fact, he's the only one who can truly create and call into being something that has never existed. The word of God says his word sustains everything, that he has power over every enemy, even over death, which is our ultimate enemy. It's the end all be all, but God has conquered it all. Amen? Come on. 
He's almighty. He's full of truth. He's a promise maker and a promise keeper. What he says, he will do. He's everlasting. He's full of integrity. He's righteous. He's a perfect judge. He's a forgiver of a rotten man like me. He's everlasting in his faithfulness. He's my savior. The word of God says he's a father, a provider, a miracle worker. He's a peace bringer. He's a shepherd and I'm a dumb sheep and I need his help. I need his help. He's a restorer of the broken and he's the most high. Why else would we call him the most high? Because he's above all others. He's supreme and he's perfect in every way. Would you give God praise today? Just praise him. Lift up a a thanks to him for who he is. Listen to what Revelation 5 verse 9 and 10 says. It says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you. Listen to me, church. The context of this is that they couldn't find anybody who could open up the scroll, but they finally did. And it says this in verse nine, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. God is going to restore what has been broken. Close your eyes with me right now. I think there are people in this room who are experiencing something where you have felt that it's broken you. You might believe the devil's lie that it's beyond repair, but he can heal a marriage. He can heal a bone. He can heal a family. He can drive out darkness wherever it hides. He can mend and restore. No matter what you've done, he can forgive you. So I want you to just reach out to him today as we worship him. Have a private moment. Express your thanks to him. And let's just lift up a praise to the God who's most high above every other name. Hallelujah.